1: Welcome everybody back to another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots, a podcast by the law firm of Ogletree Deacons for employers and those in their legal, safety, and HR departments who need to better understand OSHA as an agency and the law that governs it. I'm your host Philip Russell. I'm a shareholder in the Tampa office of the firm. I've had national practice in which I've handled about 200 fatality OSHA cases and hundreds of other types. We have one of the largest workplace safety and health practice groups in the country, We cover all 50 states with extensive experience with federal OSHA and state OSHA plans. Our approach is simple, but perhaps not easy. We help clients avoid or minimize OSHA citations and improve safety. This podcast is about education, not about legal advice for specific circumstances. As an employer, it is important for you to know what you can and cannot do, but also to know what OSHA can and cannot do. You can't hope to hold the agency accountable to the law if you don't know something about the law. And today, I'm actually joined by one of those uh, members of our workplace safety and health practice group around the country, my friend and colleague from our Dallas office, Frank Davis. Frank, say hi. Hey,
2: Philip. Uh, I'm happy to be here today, and I'm glad to have you uh, here in our Dallas office. Um, just uh, for your listeners that aren't familiar with me, i would tell you, I'm a 20-year Ogletree lawyer now. Started out my practice in this very office uh, doing traditional labor. And then the father of our modern workplace safety group, uh, David Jones, recruited me um, because I actually, we had a mutual client relationship where uh, a union was sitting at a bargaining table one time trying to tell me about uh, powered industrial trucks under 1910.178. And I called David up and he said, ah, they're full of bull. I went back. I uh, I studied the standard, and I got to the table, having figured out they were full of bull. And after that, uh, David and I were working together, and uh, my my practice went from being solely traditional labor to actually candidly being mostly uh, workplace safety. All right. When you say traditional labor, Frank, what does that mean? Uh, So traditional labor, I was working union campaigns, unfair labor practice charges, and lots and lots of contract negotiations with unions. All right,
1: so there is a bit of an overlap from time to time in the world of traditional labor and the world of workplace safety and health in dealing with OSHA. So, have you you you've been running
2: into that quite a bit over the last few years? Yeah, well, when you've got a you know you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? <laughs> so, so to me, uh, I, I always see the traditional labor in in the workplace safety component, and vice versa. I always see the workplace safety component in the traditional labor uh, setting.
0: We're
1: having this conversation today, folks, because there's been some news out of OSHA, uh, and the news is that uh, that OSHA is intending to revive a union and worker-friendly inspection representation rule, used to be known back in 2013 when it first came out as the Fairfax Memo, which was an internal memo that was then, of course, made public, uh, which was something that allowed Uh, some access to non-employees, non-management folks at an employer during an OSHA inspection. So that news, of course, has had us all dust off. What exactly did the Fairfax memo say and what should we expect from OSHA? Because this time around, the agency's intent is not to do it as a memo, but to do it through rulemaking. So what we're going to do, I think, Frank, what might be helpful is why don't we just take our audience through a scenario? So here we are. Here's the scenario. There has been a complaint at the, uh, and you can imagine in your own minds, construction site or manufacturing facility, warehouse distribution, whatever it is, there's been an employee complaint about worker safety and health. OSHA shows up, the compliance officer shows up and says, uh, we're here because of a complaint. We'd like to do an inspection. We've opened an inspection. We're gonna do the walk around. We're gonna do employee interviews, management interviews. Uh, and we'd like to get started with our opening conference. So if you have a seat in the conference room, Everybody's around the table. You've got the compliance officer, the co-show, CSHO folks, compliance, safety, and health officer. We just call it co-show. So the co-show's there from OSHA. You have a management representative uh, and maybe this, you know maybe the, the, the plant manager, and maybe you've got the site safety representative. And now there's a knock at the door, and in pops someone who says, Hi, I'm here from the local advocacy group, Workers' Rights United, I'm making that name up or the local labor union, either one, and says, I'm here, I've heard about the complaint, and I'd like to participate in the inspection. So right now, Frank, um, if that happens right now under current law, Fairfax memo is not
2: revived yet, it's not here as a rule, what could the employer do? So under current law, assuming that the employer maintains a no-access policy and doesn't allow non- authorized folks to just come and, and walk around and hang out, that employer can say, well, thanks for stopping by. I'm um, sorry you wasted your time, but uh, you're trespassing, and we need you to leave. Now, let's, let's draw a very, very
1: clear distinction here, though, Frank. Currently under the OSH Act and the National Labor Relations Act, it is perfectly legal for a union representative duly elected for a current
2: represented workforce
1: to actually show up and participate.
2: Yeah, if uh, if there is a an individual from a local union that has been certified through an RC petition in an election or has been certified because of employer recognition of a union representing a particular bargaining unit, then that individual is authorized under the law to uh, participate in the walk-around part of the inspection and they are um, if the walk-around inspection is going to deal with bargaining unit employees and their, and their uh, working conditions. All right, so I've done that before. I've been on inspections where there was
1: a representative workforce. I know you have as well. What's different about those inspections?
2: What you always see in those inspections, and that's a really good question, but what's always different about those inspections is uh, I watch OSHA. Uh, the compliance officer and frequently the assistant area directors and, and ocean management really spending a lot of extra time with that union representative. Not in every office, uh, you know, I'm down here in Region 6, and not every office acts that way down here, but many of them get kind of close to those union representatives, and those union representatives feed them other ideas and other issues in a lot of cases that are irrelevant outside the scope of the inspection. So. To answer that question, I see the inspection scope becoming expanded lots of times when union reps are available and participating. So I guess I'll share my experience
1: too, which is similar to yours, which is when they're, and again, we're now only talking about, let's just assume that person is the local business agent or someone from the local union that shows up and says, I'd like to participate in the walk around. Legally speaking, that's something that under the National Labor Relations Act and the OSHA Act, the employer has to do. But when you do that walk around, my experience has been that it tends to take longer. It tends to expand the scope a lot more. uh, And there needs to be a lot more explanation done with regard to uh, the union rep as opposed to what they're looking at and what really is safe and what's not safe. And and, and I've heard some frustrations over the years from some co shows that say that they don't really, they're not comfortable with somebody looking over their shoulder and telling them how to do their job.
2: Well, and they shouldn't be. And, And I'll tell you what. Uh, You're exactly right. When they're in there, when you get an employee advocate or or a union rep walking the plant, what you often see is uh, you see employees leaving their workstations because they want to come talk to that individual, especially if it's an individual they know. And that can upset production. That can upset what the co-show's seeing. uh, That can a distraction for other workers, and I always argue that it increases uh, the hazards in the work site whenever you, whenever you let people in that aren't normally seen in the workplace. Yeah, in, in one particular occasion, uh, no, no need to identify anything about the
1: situation other than the recollection I have of having to educate the union rep on what PPE was required and exactly what was going on on that job site, um, which was frustrating to say the least for, uh, for everyone involved. All right, so now let's let's go back then to where we started, which is the person that knocked at the door is not a the local business agent, but is actually some the employees at this job site, again, whether it's a manufacturing facility, distribution, construction, doesn't matter, but they are not represented by a union. And this is someone that shows up that is either a union organizer or not, or just a a you know workers advocate. I'm using air quotes here because I, I think that's appropriate. So what then, might the reaction be in that room whenever, and again, let's focus now. Then we'll talk in a few minutes about what might change under what we if we see the Fairfax rule reinvigorated. But you were saying right now that employers could consider asking them to leave and not participate. No,
2: and, and typically, I would. Typically, I would tell them that they're not authorized to enter um, because we have a no access rule, one, and two, I'd. If the compliance officer said anything to me about why I should let them in, I'd say, look, uh, there's one means that we're, through which uh, employees can become represented, represented, and that's the National Labor Relations Act. And if they don't go through that process, it is actually unlawful for me to let them in and try to treat them uh, as though they were the representative of the unions. Uh, Section uh, 8A2 of the National Labor Relations Act uh, says it's unlawful to have an employer-dominated union, and if I let somebody come in and act as a representative of the bargaining unit, it's as if I'm recognizing them as a representative of that group of employees, and I would argue that violates 882 of the National Labor Relations Act. Okay, so then let's,
1: and again, cautionary note to our audience here: we're not there, there's no we're not giving advice for every situation or a specific circumstance. Something that employers have to consider, though is what is the law currently requiring? What you're saying is the law doesn't currently require an employer to have that non-union rep participate in an inspection.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. I would consider it. Yeah. I mean, there might be circumstances where you don't make that argument, but I would certainly consider that as one of my options, saying, one, I've got the Fourth Amendment. Uh, I don't have to allow access. I would consider also making the argument that to allow that person in and act as a representative of the bargaining unit runs afoul of the National Labor Relations Act those are things I would consider thank you for framing it that way because you're right there are situations it's a very fluid analysis so but now let's
1: let's consider what may happen if the the Fairfax memo gets uh, revived with some proposed rule now we don't know what that might contain we just know that there is an announced intent to head in that direction so, all we can really do is to look back and see what the Fairfax memo had said before, which was 2013, and and sort of guess as to what might be in it this time around. But what we're expecting is to limit an employer's choices, to to in some way, through rulemaking, make it uh, against an OSHA rule to deny that person the opportunity to participate. Is that what you're expecting
2: to see? Um, if it's a, if, if OSHA passes a rule that specifically authorizes non-employees, non-bargaining unit representatives to enter and accompany a compliance officer on an inspection, um, I'm very interested to see what that rule is going to say because it might make it very difficult to to, to create better choices for an employer. What, what So what was the Fairfax memo before? What did it say? So, so there was a key phrase in it. I feel like it's going to really determine how, how this rule were able to pan out, and that's uh, the Fairfax memo said that a compliance officer could bring somebody in from the outside that wasn't uh, an employee representative or an employee of the plant. if the compliance officer felt that it was reasonably necessary to conduct the inspection. And that's the phrase that I'm interested in seeing uh, how it's reconciled is what is reasonable necessary. On what grounds would an individual who is not an employee or certified bargaining representative of the unit be allowed to enter that facility? That's the question that I'm I'm really looking to see answered. Yeah. And
1: again, we don't know what's going to be in this. The The, the agency, if it it will be going through the rulemaking process. Uh, and when it goes through that, at some point, we'll see a notice of proposed rulemaking in PRM. And at that point, we'll, we'll revisit this issue. But you're right. If you carry forth this concept of, you know, if it's reasonably necessary, lots of questions there about, well, reasonably necessary from whose perspective. And it'll be interesting to see because I think there are some co shows that might think they don't, it's not reasonably necessary. They don't need any help doing their jobs. But perhaps they may be given guidance either in the rule itself or from the national OSHA office or their own area office or regions that might say, no, you are to default take around someone on these walk arounds.
2: Yeah, I, I see that as an issue that I would that that would concern me and that does concern me is the inconsistency between offices, between regions. I don't know how you police it and make it a, a consistent analysis uh, it's a, uh, it's one where I could see some compliance officers, as you suggest, most of the ones that I, I work with, saying, I don't need help. I know my job. I know how to go in and identify the hazards, and I know how to apply the law to those hazards. That's what I see most doing. However, having been around this traditional labor market for so long, I've seen some instances where compliance officers not in region six where i i sit but outside of our region i've seen compliance officers form relationships with specifically with union business agents where that union business agent could call up that compliance officer and say uh, hey i think there's a problem here and then they show up with that union business agent and I'll, i'm going to add one more thing and i, I don't want to monopolize everything here philip but Whenever we're negotiating contracts for a union, they negotiate access and whether, even as a certified representative of the union, whether they can get access to the plant. Uh, Not during an ocean inspection, but just in general, to go in and take a look inside the plant. And they don't always negotiate an agreement where they get to access the plant. In other words, we might give them access to the plant through video or through some other means where they don't walk inside the plant. And that's for their safety, for employee safety, for food safety, for product safety, because of proprietary or confidential procedures going on inside there. There are reasons that we might not invite them in. But in in this one particular case I'm thinking about, where this business agent had a relationship with the compliance officer, that compliance officer could get that business agent inside the plant. And all that, business agent had to do was call up that compliance officer, uh, allege some OSHA complaint about safety, and then uh, all of a sudden that business agent gets a free pass into the plant. And that's my concern about this, is that flexibility, uh, maybe a moral flexibility among some compliance officers, where they interpret reasonably necessary in a soft way or a different way than other compliance officers and that opens the door to let non-employees non-certified representatives into the plant where they otherwise would have no right so if
1: i understand you right then in a typical collective bargaining agreement where you have represented employees there are some rules set forth as to access when and under what circumstances is that right that's exactly right so that means that Hopefully, if we get a rule for motion on this, they're going to have to address the same thing, which is when and under what circumstances uh, might there be allowed or required, I guess I should say, access in order to avoid violating whatever the standard says.
2: I think you're right. I think they're going to have to address the same issues and the rule that they're developing that we have to address when we're negotiating a contract, whether there's special safety issues, whether there's contamination issues proprietary workplaces they're going to have to address that in some way um, otherwise it's going to be part of another legal challenge okay well let's let's talk about legal challenges because some folks are not going to like
1: this rule some folks are i'm sure industry associations employer groups are are, are already looking at what they could do to challenge uh, to challenge the rule which raises the question in my mind of why why this rule why now you know what what's the purpose behind this, um, and, and I guess I should probably caution you by saying that we're not talking about Republicans and Democrats for Republican and Democrat Party's sake, but it does tend to, to uh, happen that you end up with more regulation under Democratic administrations, maybe less under Republican administrations, but what do you make of the, the purpose of the rule?
2: I want to be real careful about this because I, I don't think it's always followed the party lines as it's following the party lines now. Uh, I I think that the rules that are more favorable to to organized labor follow the money, uh, and what we know from the last uh, election is there were significant contributions made to the current administration during the election, um, because like any other public interest group or any other group. They're trying to fund the, the causes that are most significant uh, to their interests. And uh, in response to that funding, what we're seeing is some, some pro-labor decisions. Uh, for instance, the current Labor Board has um, has a larger percentage of members uh, that uh, tend to support unions than, than it did under the last administration. The General Counsel uh, is promulgating some very specific rules regarding support to union. but this is just another one. This is using another branch of, the, of, uh, of, of another branch of, of the executive office to uh, to further uh, those initiatives. So if you right now,
1: if you're an employer or even an employee under the National Labor Relations Act, and you want to assert your legal right to remain union free because again, section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, says employees have a right to engage in protected activity and also union organizing, but they also have a right not to participate in those activities. Same thing with employers. They have a right to lawfully remain union free. If you're an employer or an employee in those categories, then this might be something you should consider as changing your ability to do that. Uh,
2: it, it certainly is a, a, a way to put more pressure on employees. It's a way for uh, a union to get more access and put more pressure on employees by uh, forcing an employer to allow um, a, a union representative into a non-union facility uh, and, and exposing employees to that. Uh, that, that. That's certainly something that could come from this. Uh, Section 7, though, doesn't cover employer rights. It's uh, all employee rights, the right to, to to join a union, the right to engage in protect, uh, protected concerted activity, and the right to not do any of those things. Uh, and, and and employers have the right to, to give facts and opinions and experiences and and to state their position about how they feel about unions. That's Those are absolute rights of the employer, and employers have the right to control who comes into their facility uh, under current law. All right, Frank, thanks. I
1: appreciate the clarification on my, my comment. So let's, let's wrap it up here and talk about what employers uh, should consider in light of this uh, this announcement, this news, uh, and what may be coming down the pipeline promotion in the next few months. Do you have any thoughts?
2: So I have two, two ideas. One is conducting a vulnerability assessment of the workplace to determine uh, employee Interest in, in organized labor to identify, but not asking that question specifically, but to identify whether there are drives or grievances or issues that may lead to employees wanting to organize or file complaints or file lawsuits. Uh, and then the other, uh, I would consider reviewing their plan for when OSHA comes a knocking. And and uh, I consider evaluating whether they need to have a strategy to address third parties accompanying an OSHA compliance officer.
1: Yeah, what to do if OSHA shows up? That's a question that we hear quite a bit and I suspect that there are many uh, company protocols out there that uh, that address a lot of issues that might not currently consider what to do if someone shows up to want to participate in the inspection who's not from OSHA. So perhaps that's something for employers to consider. Well, folks, that's it for this episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots. I want to thank my friend Frank Davis. We will be uh, continuing to record these on a hopefully regular recurring basis in 2023 as we keep an eye on the agency in terms of what they're doing with regard to regulatory moves, inspections, citations, and litigation. I'll be joined by many of my colleagues and and some other folks uh, as we go during the year. Before we leave, I wanted to remind everyone that we have now put out the Save the Date for our Workplace Safety Symposium. Last year it was in Tampa in December of 2022, my hometown. We had a great time. This year it will be in Austin. It is December 6th, 7th, and 8th, deep in the heart of Texas, your home state, my friend. And the uh, location is the Hilton Austin. Registration is online, so go look us up at ogletree.com. You can find it under the Seminars tab. You're looking for the Workplace Safety Symposium. We sold out before Thanksgiving last year, so I don't recommend you just save the date. I recommend you register now and book your hotel. Thanks, folks. We'll see you on the next episode. Frank, thank you, my friend.
2: Thanks, Phil. Good to see you.